All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter three. First Corinthians chapter three. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, we will put the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point in our time together. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would uh, be happy to give you one. We actually believe that, uh, that giving Bibles away is actually a fun thing around here. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want you to be shaped by Him, defined by Him, find your value and identity in Him. And so um, if Bible reading is the way he, he shapes those things in you, fulfills those things in you, we want to put Bibles in people's hands. So if you don't have one, come talk to me. We actually can give them away. Um, I want to apologize to you in advance. Um, it's going to be a long one today. <laughs> just, just a little bit. I, if I move quicker than normal, <laughs> you, okay, you okay with an hour if, I, if it means I go two times speed instead of five times speed? Um, just checking. All right, so we're in the early stages of a very long sermon series walking through the letter that we call First Corinthians. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we think somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. Uh, he wrote it to the uh, Greek city of Corinth, or the church that was meeting in the Greek city of Corinth. And Corinth was a place that, that Paul knew incredibly well. He, he had been the first pastor there, if you want to call him that. He was, he was, a, he was an integral part of, of beginning the church in Corinth. He evangelized most of the area. And so Paul knew these people well. Uh, he, had, he was not in Corinth, obviously, when he's writing this letter. Uh, he had moved on from there to start churches in new places, other places. And, but at a max, he was probably gone for two to three years after that. And so uh, he he had known him for about 18 months, lived there for about 18 months, and then had been gone for maybe twice that time, if that long at all. All right, and so these are people, these aren't, these aren't strangers to him. They're, they're not a people that he doesn't know. They're people he probably ate in their house, and he, he may have even actually shared the gospel with them for the very first time. They're people that he knows inside and out. And so Paul's tone throughout this letter, yes, carries an apostolic authority. He's, he's going to say what they ought to do and what they ought to think, but it also, at the same time, carries a very tender pastoral tone. All right? He loves them. He wants good for them. He, he's not merely throwing some wisdom at them and then walking away. This is a group of people that he stays up late at night thinking about, worrying about, kind of desperate, desperately begging God to do big things and and so he writes in this letter, and it's, it's not an easy letter. There's some, there's some things that Paul needs to say here that, that, that he's going to press through the nonsense. He's going to press through the awkwardness. He's going to say what needs to be said, right? There's, there's going to be some things that are painful to hear for everybody, at least a lot of folks. Things are going to be said that really need to be said, but Paul is... He loves them, and he's not going to take the easy way out. Instead, he's going to press in, right? He's going to engage, because that's what love does. We have this weird kind of definition of love in our culture that, that never does that kind of thing, but that's what love always does in the Bible. It presses in. It suffers at the sake of itself for the good of another. And so Paul loves them far too much to sit back and watch them fall apart. He's going to engage. He's going to press in. He's going to say the difficult thing. And so we've been trying to show over the last month and a half now, that, that Paul's desires to call the Corinthians and the church in Corinth to, to invest themselves in what we're calling a beautifully upside-down 
kingdom. And there's, there's the artwork right there. Garrett did a, a good job. This, this beautifully upside-down kingdom. And, and yeah, that kingdom is going to initially strike us as awkward and maybe even might strike us as unwise when, when we see the direct conflict between that kingdom and the kingdom that we find ourselves living in and are surrounded by. There's going to be some things about this coming kingdom that seem upside-down and awkward to us, maybe even detestable to us in some regards. But, but God seems to have designed it that way on purpose. It's not some kind of weird accident. It, it, God's, not, uh, God's not bad at planning. He's, he didn't throw a plan out there, and, and now we need to deal with the consequences of him not thinking it through. No, God seems to have done this on purpose. Either get A, God is not very smart, or B, God is smarter than the rest of us, and we need to figure out what he's doing. Right? That's, the, that's the dynamic in front of us. And, and so we've been disciplining ourselves throughout the reading of this letter, throughout the, the studying of this letter, to, to lay maybe those initial questions aside for, for just a moment. Yeah, it might strike us as awkward. Yeah, it might strike us as detestable. Yeah, it might strike us as backwards or antiquated or whatever word you want to give it. But we've been disciplining ourselves to lay those questions, initial questions aside for a moment and instead ask a different question. Is it beautiful? Is it beautiful? Is it or we can ask other questions. Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then, then who cares how it might initially strike us? In life, we call that a hurdle. The purpose of a hurdle is to jump over the hurdle so you can continue running, right? It's just a hurdle, so jump over it and get going. So despite whatever we might naturally be inclined to, to value and pursue, despite whatever the culture around us might, might uh, maybe or maybe not be able to wrap their heads around in that moment, if you would but dive deeply into God's good design, I, I don't think it'll be long before you actually fall in love with what he's done. Nor do I think it'll be long before you realize that it's the, the kingdom you find yourself living in that's the one that's actually upside down. Other kingdoms always promise all kinds of stuff. They promise to fix this and to fulfill that and solve all your problems, achieve all your dreams, whatever you want to insert into the blank. But people don't ever seem to notice that they never actually deliver on those promises. They promise a lot, but they're completely impotent. And, and that's because they can't deliver. They, they actually cannot deliver. God has designed them, set them up to fail, left them to be incomplete and frustrating. And so things like the cross, we've learned, things like the cross will always, an emphasis on always, it will always be seen as folly to those who are perishing. It can't help but be seen that way. And when you think about it, it makes a ton of sense, right? Isn't the cross 100% backwards and upside down from everything we value in this world? For everything we point to and say, yeah, that's successful. Yeah, that's worthy of celebration. Yeah, that's worthy of putting up on the highest pedestal that we've got. It's the exact opposite of that. I mean, what kind of king lays his own life down? It's ridiculous. Kings don't do that. What kind of king suffers so that his people might be made free? No, no king does that. We don't celebrate that in our world. It's absolutely backwards. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those that God gives eyes to see, or, or as Paul says, those whom he calls, the Bible says it is, is the power of God to save. And that's kind of where we left things off last week, right? We, we need God to make sense of things. We need him to, to hang on to things for us and to bring things to their completion for us. And, 
And so as we continue to, to grow in maturity, uh, the Bible's pretty clear that it's not actually our ability that does the growing. It's not, it's not our ability that enables the growth. It's, it's not our ability to, to, to figure things out that, that opens the door for us to, to the deeper things of God. It's, it's the God who is good to reveal himself. The Spirit opens us up to those realities and he makes himself known. And over and over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible, we are introduced to the God who actually seems to delight in doing exactly that. He's not sitting on a faraway throne frustrated that you haven't figured it out yet. No, he's drawing near and saying, this is who I am. Know me. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, we looked at it last week. Paul calls it words taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual people. In other words, we are faithful to teach. We are faithful to press in through the, the good tools that he's given us, like Bible reading and prayer and Christian community. We are faithful to do those things, sure, but at the end of the day, the Spirit is the one who ultimately brings the growth. The Spirit is the one who ultimately brings understanding. And so that, that leads us to a, an important question, I think, for this morning, or at least a new question that we've got to figure out. If God desires to make himself deeply known, then is there anything that can stand in the way of that? And I think that's a question that chapter 3 might be able to answer for us. So let's look at it together. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. All right, let's call a time out there. All right, so if you remember, Corinth was, the, was beginning to divide itself and kind of uh, piece itself out into little tribes based on what we think is probably their preferred leadership style. And some wanted to be on Team Paul, and some wanted to be on Team Apollos, blah, 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 blah. It was all nonsense. And the part of that petty dividing up was really about which teacher they thought taught them deeper stuff. Uh, as far as we can tell, it's not explicitly laid out for us why they were dividing up, but what the evidence that's there for us leads us to believe that a major reason why they were picking this tribe or this tribe was because they like this pastor's preaching better than that pastor's preaching. Right, that's, that's really what we're left to figure out here. And so Corinth was a city that kind of highly valued rhetoric and highly valued these grand gestures of speech and human wisdom, even to the point where pretense was often celebrated as much or more than actual wisdom. All right? And so this is kind of just the culture of the city, and because it was the culture of the city, it was the culture of the church. And, and Paul tells them, hey, I didn't give you deep wisdom when I was there because I couldn't give you deep wisdom when I was there. You were immature when I was there. That's what he says. I couldn't go through the deeper things of God with you because you weren't ready for it. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, as the mature. I had to address you as people of what? What's that word? The flesh. Paul drops that word flesh several times throughout his writings in the New Testament. Um, he uses it in a couple of different ways throughout his writings, but um, depending on the circumstance, it's used here and it's used there, but most of the time, that word flesh, he uses it to speak of the unredeemed, lingering pieces of our human nature. Specifically, the sinful actions that flow out of that human nature. The things that doesn't seem Jesus really got a hold of that piece of you yet. 
The Greek word for flesh there is sarx, S-A-R-X, which is a fun word to say. And then you'll, in the Greek, you'll add different suffixes onto the end of that to change its meaning and to adapt it for whatever need. And so the Greek word here specifically in, in first, or first Corinthians 3, it, it, it's sarkinos, sarkinos. And so um, that suffix, the suffix there, it's, it's characterized by, or it means to be characterized by something. It, it's, it kind of carries the idea of, of something being defined by and shaped by. Paul's saying that during his time in Corinth, everything in their lives was characterized by and defined by and shaped by and I would say personally measured by the unredeemed values and worldview that they had been saved out of. That they were still hanging on to these, these old ways of doing things and hanging on to these old ways of seeing the world and hanging on to these old things that they valued and sought to put up on the pedestal. It's not that they weren't saved, it's not that they weren't Christians, but the effects of the, the changed heart that Jesus had supposedly given them hadn't worked its way all the way through what it needed to work its way through yet. In other words, they weren't ready for deeper wisdom because they hadn't properly dealt with the fundamentals yet. That's what Paul's saying. It'd be like a kid complaining that they weren't being taught calculus in school and they hadn't even learned how to subtract. That's kind of the picture that's, that's going on here. You need some fundamentals locked down for calculus before you can get to the calculus, right? Ah, could you believe our first grade teacher didn't teach us calculus? Obviously, 12th grade teachers are better because they teach us the deeper things, right? I mean, it's great that you choose to like first grade teachers, but I'm on team 12th grade teachers. And it's sarcasm, obviously, but it's also the tone of what's going on in Corinth. Oh, it's great that you like Paul. I like Apollos. He taught us the deeper things. Right? Paul says that it was his job to nurse them. He had to give them milk, not solid food. And the implication there is that, that if Paul had given them solid food, if he had given them something deep and meaty, it would have actually harmed them, right? It would have harmed them in that immature season. It would have created problems for them because they weren't ready for it. Uh, when, when our eldest was born, o Olivia, um, she was only a few months old, I guess, uh, I, I made a habit or, of trying to sneak some things to her from my plate. Luckily for her, Katie's a much better parent than I am. Right? Shut that down, man. You can't do that. You can't give her that. And, 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 and my, from my vantage point, I was just trying to be nice. Like, like I, I don't give away food, all right? Don't you see how much I love you? I want to get, it's steak. Look at this. Look at what I made. It's awesome. I'll share with you because I love you. But, but when we're talking about a, a baby who's only a few months old, giving is not how you love them. Withholding is how you love them, right? And so that was the season that, that they were in. They needed milk, not, not meat. Paul understood what was helpful for them during that time and here they are now complaining that he didn't give them the steak unfortunately unfortunately growing in spiritual maturity is not as straightforward as growing in physical maturity usually is and so look at the rest of verse 2 I fed you with milk not solid food for you were not re ready for it and even now you are not yet ready Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh, 
For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? So Paul says that even several years later, they're still immature. They're still characterized, shaped by, defined by the flesh. And, and it's not because growing in spiritual maturity is this incredibly complicated thing that takes some incredibly long amount of time. For some, it actually happens pretty quick. Right? And so it's not as, it's not as straightforward. It's not, it's not as linear as growing up uh, physically is. Sometimes it happens quick. Sometimes it happens slow. But the Corinthians are still, to this day, of Paul's writing, they're still defined by and shaped by and measured themselves by the values and worldviews that they were supposedly saved out of. That's still what they used to, to see the world and make sense of the world and call themselves as successful by. They hadn't grown up any in that regard. So even now, at the time of Paul's writing, even, even then, they're still not ready for solid food. They should be ready. It's been long enough, but their immaturity stands in the way of that. And Paul says that the proof of that immaturity, the proof of that immaturity is found in their jealousy and the strife going on in the camp. I think both of those words are words that... Um, often get pretty confused in, in our culture. Um, we talk about, sometimes in here, about the difference between the positive and the, the negative sense, uh, or the ne positive and negative definitions of the word jealousy. Uh, God described himself multiple times in the Bible as being a jealous God, right? And so if, uh, if all we have in our heads is the, jealous, or is the negative definition of jealousy when we, when we read that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound a little awkward to us, right? It's going to sound a, a little... little um, Interesting. It strikes us as a bad thing, and it pricks our sensibilities, right? But, but like we talked about before, jealousy, it, it can be a good thing if it leads you to protect that which is being endangered. That's a good definition of jealousy. Jealousy is, is the driving factor that, that moves you to guard what needs to be guarded. All right? and so there's a positive definition of jealousy, and there's a, a negative def definition of jealousy. And sometimes we have to paddle upstream against the cultural current to, to fight for that positive definition. But, but, but even... Even the negative sense of the word, I think, often gets kind of a bad treatment in our culture. It's not just that we forget about the positive side of the word. I think we, I think we misalign and misappropriate the negative side of the word sometimes, too. We, we normally think of jealousy as merely like this, this fleshing out of some form of insecurity, right? Don't you immediately picture a, like a, a young boyfriend and girlfriend? Like, that's, that's the mental picture I get in my head whenever I hear that word. Oh, look at them. They just don't know what the, how the world works, all right? That, that's what I think. It's, I, I'm guessing it's probably what you think, too. All right? um, but, but the negative definition of, of jealousy, it kind of has roots in rivalry and envy. There's an opponent out there, and, and that opponent out there, th their success is seen by you as somehow robbing you of your own. That's what's really going on, and even in the negative sense of the word jealousy, you're playing a zero-sum game, and, and a rival out there, somewhere in the distance, whether they're close or far away, a rival out there needs to be taken out so that you can finally be happy. The word strife is, I think, even more complicated than the word jealousy. It's one of those words that we, I think we all kind of assume we know the definition of, but we never actually looked up. I was guilty of that until I started looking at this. Um, I think I've used it in a sentence a few times. Then I went action, actually Googled the words like, oh, I think I've been using that wrong. Have you ever done that? I do that all the time. Strife is a, an angry or bitter disagreement over fundamental issues, is what the dictionary says. Emphasis on the word bitter. It's not just, 
a frustration moment. It's not just pain or heartache. I think that's oftentimes how I've heard that word used. No, it's this moment where bitter disagreement happens over a foundational thing. In other words, it's when they go low, we go lower kind of vibe. Don't you just love those moments? Petty, retaliatory. Those are good, healthy moments for everybody, right? Paul points to the jealousy going on. He points to the strife that's playing out in the church at Corinth. He says, hey, hey, you want to know how I know that you're immature? That. That's what he says. That right there. How do do I know that you still need milk instead of being tossed one of the stakes that is the deep things of God? Take a look around, Corinth, because all of those who are mature see you for what you really are. All those who are grown up in the faith, all those who are walking in maturity, we're watching what's going on there, and we know better. Despite what you present yourself as, despite what you like to believe about yourself, we know how immature you actually are. Take a look around, Corinth, because all we see is immature things, jealousy and strife. You may believe that you're walking in maturity. You may believe that you're ready for staying, but those who are mature in the room know better. You pretend you're grown up, but the grown-ups in the room see you for the child that you are. But it actually goes deeper than just spiritual maturity, immaturity, because look at verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human. All right, so I know that that sentence probably doesn't initially strike you as some kind of shocking thing, um, which is why I need to go ahead and say, even though I love the ESV, I hate the way they translated that verse. I really don't like it at all. I think they failed here. Um, I don't think the ESV actually translated this verse well. Why? Because the word following is way too tame. What's going on in the Greek? Way too tame. Um, The word has nothing to do with picking your favorite team captain. That's the kind of the idea that we think of in following. You think of a kid's game of follow the leader, right? Um, it carries the, this word in the Greek, it carries the idea of placing yourself under the authority of something. Placing yourself under the authority of something. And sometimes it's used to, uh, to speak of copying something, uh, to make it look exactly like the original. Uh, you, you're, taking, uh, you're, you're taking one thing and kind of forming it into the mold of another. So you got like a mold or a template, right? Uh, you, you kind of picture a manufacturing process. And so you're squeezing it, you're cutting it, you're bending it, you're shaping it so that it looks like the original. It looks like the thing that you want to emulate, right? And so that's, that's really cool when you're talking about a manufacturing process. If you're like me, I dorked out over watching how it's made TV shows all the time when I was growing up. Right? Those are cool moments for me. I love those TV shows. The problem is that in Paul's day, this phrasing was more often used to talk about a slave being obedient to their master. A slave being obedient to their master. In other words, the slave is squeezed, and they're cut, and they're bent, and they're shaped to think and act like their master thought and acted. And I know our heads all immediately run to chattel slavery here. Mine does too. I think it's what we've been conditioned to, to think about, especially in the U.S. where that's been a problem for us. Uh, and so that's the picture we've all got locked down. But th- that, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's pa- talking about something voluntary, which in this case I think is actually worse. 
as heinous as, as chattel slavery obviously was, this is not something that was being forced upon somebody, someone. It's something that someone was voluntarily, voluntarily submitting themselves to, a willing laying down of their identity and rights. A voluntary decision to align yourself with a tribe, but in that decision to align yourself, it costs you way more than what you're getting in return. You're making an economic decision, it's a terrible one. You freely choose to give up stuff that's actually valuable so you can place yourself under the will and the authority of a slave master. And that master is going to squeeze you, and they're going to cut you, and they're going to bend you, and they're going to shape you till there's nothing left that's recognizable of you, and instead you look exactly like your master. An exact copy. Paul says you think you're picking a team and positioning yourself for success, but what you're actually doing is enslaving yourself to a master. And even in the best case scenario, it robs you of a better offer. What are you doing? And, and that's best case scenario. That's, ha- that's if you happen to pick a really benevolent master, but even the good ones fail. More likely than not, your master will be not nearly as benevolent as you hope they will be. Paul says that y- you might be thinking that you're doing some nothing more than picking Team Paul or Team Apollos, but you're ultimately placing yourself under a tribal authority that God never actually called you to place yourself under. He says that in doing that, you show that you still see the world as merely human. Or we can say that a different way. The opposite of godly. The opposite of godly. You see and you value and you pursue things exactly like you did before the Spirit is supposed to have given you new eyes to see. There's supposed to be a change there, and you're proving that that change hasn't taken place. Not only is that a red flag for your immaturity, but it also fleshes itself out in the community. It fleshes itself out with jealousy and strife. Not only does it affect things that you think are just small and inconsequential, not only does it affect things that you think are internal and hidden from everybody else, doesn't affect anybody else, but the core level demeanor also quickly spills out over into the life of the church, into the life of the Christian community. And so it affects the health of the church even as you walk in it. In other words, you're not just picking a team. What we're really talking about here is divisiveness. Divisiveness. And that divisiveness, it, it ultimately affects the kingdom. So Paul asks the question that I think deserves to be asked in verse, nine, in verse 5. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. All right, so Paul says that immature team picking, it ultimately tries to subdivide and and to break apart the larger organism that God saw fit to give to you. That's what you're doing. God gave you a good thing, and you're trying to slash it into pieces for your own benefit. You're trying to cut up and mar a larger, healthier whole. There is no team Paul. There is no team Apollos. They're on the same team. It's not wrong for you to have a favorite hand. 
Right? I think it's weird, but it's not wrong for you to have a favorite hand. But like, if you one day start talking about how your right hand can't be trusted and your left hand is the only one around here that can get the job done, I'm going to load you up and take you to see a doctor. Right? There's a problem. There's a, there's a core level disconnect going on, and, and you're about to do harm to your body. Right? You're about to cause a massive problem to the healthy whole. It's not wrong for you to have a favorite, but the moment you start acting upon that terrible decision-making, you're doing damage to something. Your hands can't be arbitrarily separated like that. They're, they're pieces of a singular you, right? And so the very instant that you attempt to, to act on that false belief is the moment that you start causing massive problems to your health and to your welfare. The, the divisions forming in Corinth, same kind of issues. Same kind of issues. The leaders that, that God had chosen to use there, they are different pieces of a singular work. Church, the, the Corinthians, they had, a, they had a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of the leaders that God had given them. Fundamental mis misunderstanding about the nature of church leadership. Their immaturity had caused them to, or led them to, to create sides and create enemies where by God's design, they were only ever supposed to be teammates. Teammates that had been given tasks, different tasks for sure. Like God called one to do this and one to do that. One planted, another watered, we're told. But those tasks were minor chores in the grand scheme of what God was doing in Corinth. Paul and Apollos' roles, they paled in comparison to God, who is the one who gave the growth. God is the one doing the heavy lifting. And God is the one who is responsible for the final product, full stop. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Paul asked back in chapter 1, is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's ridiculous that anyone would ever try to give the credit to Paul or anybody else for the work that Jesus was doing. They are single scene players in a cosmic redemption story. Now, does that mean that, that those temporary scenes aren't important, that those temporary roles aren't a massive deal? No, it doesn't mean that at all. God seems to work opposite of that. God has and he will continue to use his people in absolutely huge ways. I think we should be thankful for those moments. I think we should beg God for more of those moments. Where it goes wrong, though, is when that idea shifts into a prideful overinflation of ourselves. Whether we're talking about Corinth or Nashua or any other place you want to fill in the blank, the... Uh, Whenever God's people take their eyes off the transcendence of our Savior and King, we kind of get this weird, nasty habit of believing that we would make a good replacement. We're so thoroughly impressed with ourselves that we forget the, our place the very moment we lose sight of He who is actually impressive. Or is my heart the only one that does that? Paul reminds the Corinthians yet again, in this letter, yet again, that they are a part of a larger story that existed long before them and will go on long after them. In verse 10, Paul calls them God's building. In other words, they're not making something of themselves. God's making something of them. They are not building themselves. They are being built. They are being built by God and 
for God, we would say. And God will pull in different workers and different projects from different seasons, obviously, but the glory and the credit for the work goes to God and God alone. He will see to it. And so in verse 10, Paul says this, According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the role that that Paul gets to play in the Corinthian church or the story of the Corinthian church is that of the skilled master laborer. And and there's a ton actually going on in the original language here that that really ought to get our heads spinning. Um, Firstly is that word skilled. It's likely a word that we'll probably just skip right over because it, I mean, what does skilled mean? We think we know what it means. But it carries the idea here of an earned wisdom and earned wisdom in other words through gobs of experience you've accumulated knowledge and you've accumulated discernment and you can, can, can accumulated expertise on the topic and, and let's be honest we kind of live in a world where people get the title of expert really quickly right it just kind of happens especially if they already agree with what we were thinking right we'll be happy to cast that title on them right uh, but but paul actually earned the title of expert in this when it came to starting churches, Paul was an authority here. But it's the master builder piece that, that's even cooler. In the Greek, the word is architecton. Anybody not smart enough to figure out where that one's going? <laughs> architecton. You might want to guess what that one shifted into in English. So the master builder here that Paul's, not, that Paul's talking about, it's not merely the foreman on a job site. We're talking about a designer talk about someone who brings in their wisdom and brings in their expertise and folds in their style and folds in their their dreaming up of the role and begins to build paul walked into corinth carrying his expertise of laying the foundation for new churches and that's exactly what he saw built it's exactly what he saw built he he completed his work and then god called him to take his expertise on to the next place Start a new church somewhere else. If you follow Paul throughout the book of Acts, that's, that's his trajectory, right? He moves from place to place to place to place to place, always starting new churches. Uh, we studied Romans last year. In Romans uh, 15, I think it's verse 20, Paul says that his ambition was not to build upon the work of another, that he, was gonna, he wasn't going to build upon someone else's foundation. He was going to go to a place where Jesus hadn't been named yet, right? right? And so Paul's calling was to take the gospel to all these new places and be the expert church starter and take the gospel here and then take the gospel here and take the gospel there and let somebody else build up from the foundation. Does that, does that mean that the, the second guy coming in to do the building after Paul that was less valuable than him? No, just a different calling. It's just a different calling. And so what we need to see here is that even though God is the one doing the heavy lifting, even though God is the one bringing the growth and is ultimately responsible for those things, it does not mean that he doesn't use his people in absolutely massive ways. He does. It doesn't mean that he doesn't elevate some to incredible responsibility. Well, wait a second. Didn't we talk last week about the opposite of that? Right? Didn't we say, spent a lot of time last week talking about how Paul was intentionally weak during his time in Corinth? That, that, uh, that for him, it was a time to set aside his skill set and instead be dependent upon God? I remember saying that. I was standing right here. Well, notice who the skilled master builder gives the credit to. What does verse 10 say? According to the what? The grace of God given me. 
Paul had the experience, and Paul has the knowledge, and Paul has the results, but Paul knows exactly where Paul's success comes from, and it ain't Paul. It's the charity of God. So what, so that word grace means, chorus, charity. In God's goodness, Paul has seen success. Paul gets to be called the skilled master builder simply because God allows him to be called the skilled master builder. If God wants to use somebody else, we'll celebrate it just the same. I get the impression Paul will too. I think Paul's hope is that a church emerges, not that he was the one that built it. The foundation will be faithfully laid. And whether Paul or someone else, once that foundational architect moves on, what happens next? Well, Paul says that someone else comes in and builds upon it, right? Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, notice the capital D there, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. All right, so regardless of however faithful the foundation might have been laid, it is incumbent upon all the leaders that follow that foundational moment to continue walking faithfully. That's what Paul says. Every generation of leaders in Corinth or in the Corinthian church, they carried the same obligation to continue building upon the good foundation that was seen fit to be left for them. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of warnings to leaders of God's people that they will one day stand and give an account for how faithfully they led, that they will, uh, they will answer for how faithfully or unfaithfully they carried the responsibility that God entrusted to them. That's littered all throughout the Bible. And, and that, that reality is plenty worthy of talking about in, in, in all kinds of moments. The problem, though, is that it's actually off topic for our morning. Because Paul stops talking specifically about leaders way back in verse 10. He keeps using words like each one and no one and anyone. That tells us he's talking about everyone. See, while church leaders have a clear, biblically mandated responsibility to build on the foundation and faithfulness, so do church members. Every one of us has a clear, biblically mandated responsibility to build on the foundation in faithfulness. That, that building that's going up, it's not a spectator project. There are no spectators here. Spectating isn't even an option. The reality is, is that if you're breathing, you're building you have a part to contribute in one way or, the, or another. Uh, the question that needs to be answered is, what exactly are you contributing? Right? Paul continues his building analogy by talking about building material, right? He starts naming off things, gold, silver, precious stones, which would, let's be honest, that's a weird thing to, to picture as building material, right? Anybody built their house this year off of solid gold? You think your property taxes are high now? 
go up just a little bit. So what's going on here? Well, while you would never build out a solid gold, it's actually a pretty common thing in first century Greco-Roman world to adorn really important buildings with special materials, right? Maybe you've taken a trip to Europe or something like that or seen pictures on the internet, whatever it is. But it, it's not common, it's not uncommon to, to walk through ruins of old buildings and find a special gold inlay in something. Or maybe one column is built out of a special piece of really ornate marble. It doesn't matter what something is. You can kind of show the importance and the value of that something by encrusting it with a couple of fancy jewels, right? You are indicating the importance of something by adorning it, by decorating it in some special kind of way. And, and when you think about it, that's not a lot different from how we treat our stuff today, right? You may not have gold inlay or diamond-encrusted wallpaper, but that would be weird. But, but there's a difference between slapping a building together and taking some time, right? There's a difference between using the cheapest materials available and going and getting the hardwood. Making sure you get that bare one-coat paint instead of the cheap stuff they have at Home Depot, right? You can, there's a difference between slapping something together and taking the effort to adorn. Paul applies this same logic to, to the church. And remember, when we're talking about church here, we're not talking about our building. We're talking about the people of God called the church, right? Paul takes this same logic and he applies it to the building up of the church. He says that as fellow believers, some will be faithful to adorn and some just won't care. But whatever we build, it'll be judged by the owner of the building. It will be tested, and on the day of its testing, we will know for certain what has eternal value, and we will know for certain what we have wasted our time and what we have wasted our energy and what we have wasted our resources on. It'll be seen. Because those wasted things, they will be burned up. And we will suffer the loss for them. We will understand in that moment as we watch our work go up in flames that it was a waste follower of Jesus, if you're breathing, you're building, but what are you building? When God looks upon our church, and especially the part that you have to play here, does, does he see us adorning what he's building here uh, with, with that which is spiritually precious, right? That which will remain standing long after the dross is burned away. Forget about what might seem impressive to us. Our I don't know about you, but my fickle heart isn't really a good standard bearer. I tend to be impressed by things that God's not so impressed by. Forget about it, sincerity, because sincerely built houses of hay will burn just as quickly. Are we adorning our church, the, the people of God called Nashua Baptist, are we adorning our church with what is spiritually precious? And so in verse 16, Paul says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we've talked about this in here before, right? Uh, most people are aware of and thoroughly adore all the places in the Bible that talk about God's spirit dwelling in us individually, right? right? It's, it's comfort to our souls that 
that, that God's not just a faraway God, but he's a God who is in us, breathing us, enabling us to, to do the things and be obedient in the things he's called us to. It is, it is a warm blanket to our souls when and we have the dark day. That God in, dwells with his people individually is great news. But God's not, Paul's not talking about individuals here. He's still talking to a church, right? He's not addressing individuals. He's talking to the corporate community of the church. And so while it might be talked about less, it is equally true that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in God's people corporately. Corporately. Paul tells the Ephesian church the same thing in Ephesians 2.22. We have an individual identity as Christians because of the Spirit within us, and we also have a, a corporate identity as Christians, uh, as Christians because of the Spirit with, within us. And we, and we said that, that this means that, that God gives us more of himself when we are together than he ever will when we are isolated. And that's one of the reasons why we, we fought so hard to, to get back in this building when it was time to get back in this building. It's because we believe that God dwells here uh, in the gathered people more than just in us scattered in a bunch of homes. That it's important to us. We, we believe that God blesses that, right? And so um, in simpler terms, we, we get more of God together than we ever can by ourselves. And so the flip side of that is also true. When we don't press in, when we don't connect to the body, we try to keep the, the, the church community at arm's length and make sure that we don't get too close. And it actually means that we rob ourselves of something that God wants to give us. Oh, but you don't understand. Sometimes church is messy. Some of those people are weird. Pastor has a weird accent. Have you heard? Relationships are hard. And I kind of like an exit strategy. I like to be able to pull away when things get, when things get tough. Man, I hear you. Me too. I agree, actually. It is easier. I wonder if we have an enemy who likes to play that card. I wonder if it's advantageous for him to remind you of that as often as possible. Maybe that might be true. Nah, that can't possibly be true. So Paul starts speaking here to this corporate identity of the church. He says, hey, you remember, right? You, you are a temple of God and, and that God's spirit dwells within you corporately. And so here's, here's a question I have. Do you think God's protective of that? I think he likes to guard his house. I think he has certain ideas and maybe he's jealous for the holiness of the thing. So in verse 17, Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Maybe we shouldn't read that as a passing threat. Maybe we shouldn't gloss over that, right? Paul leaves the door open here for the possibility that there are people in Corinth who consider themselves to be a part of the body who aren't. Who instead of, who, who might call themselves a part of the body, it might be true in name, but in, it's not true in reality. Not only are they not trying to build things that will last, they're actually looking to undermine and cause damage. They're not actually a part of God's people, and they're looking to be a distraction to those who are. But the promise is as clear as any promise can be. It will not go well for them. They very well may succeed in destroying a church, but, but success needs a longer view of history. They need to know what comes after the successful destroying of a church. Because God promises exactly how he will respond. He says he'll destroy them. 
God's temple is holy, and so let us never, ever pretend that he, will, that he who is perfectly holy will sit back and allow something like that to be undermined. He will not allow it to carry on for very long. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. All right, so the beautifully upside down kingdom rolls on, right? That, that's what's going on here. But, but the one who thinks that he is wise, instead repent and submit themselves to the, uh, to the wisdom of the king, right? That, that, that's what Paul says. That, that earthly wisdom is not merely insufficient. It's not merely incapable of getting the job done. It will actually be used against you. That's what he says. So repent. He catches the wise in their craftiness, Paul says. So repent. Don't fall into the trap. Sin-filled immaturity always puffs up. Always. It always produces jealousy. It always produces strife. It always produces divisions. It never, ever produces the deep things of God. And so the answer, the answer to turning away from immaturity to turning towards the deep things of God is repentance, right? The answer is to turn away from all that you would try to use to exalt yourself and instead lean in to the one who is good and who delights in making himself known. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So through repentance and faith, we belong to Christ. And so all things are ours. Yes, even the deepest things of God. He is pleased to make himself known to us. He is pleased to lead us in a depth of understanding. We don't have to pick between Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even the world. We get them all. They're on Team Jesus, and you're on Team Jesus, and so because they're on Team Jesus, and you're on Team Jesus, we get them too. That's what Paul says. They're ours. And so the jealousy and strife in Corinth was proof of how little they actually understood about the kingdom they belonged to. It, it's proof of how little they actually understood about the deep things of God. Their immaturity fleshed itself out in their division. And Paul loves them enough to wade through the nonsense and call them on it. You think you're ready for steak, but I see how you're acting, so I'm going to go get another bottle ready. Get some milk for your rumbly tum-tum over there. Sarcasm or not, the, the call for Corinth is crystal clear. Repent. Get over yourself. That's what Paul says. Get over yourself. Maybe try lowering how highly you think of you, and you just might find out that the God who delights in making himself known is near. He is willing to draw you deeper in still. And so, church family, I, I really think that's our call too, right? No, we're not Corinth. We... We don't suffer with the same things they do, but we've been saying for weeks now that the pathway to get to looking like Corinth is a lot shorter than we like to pretend that it is. 
And the, the simple turn from thinking that we're awesome to thinking that we are dependent upon God for everything it is a massive change of direction. It may seem like such a subtle turn, but it's a 180-degree shift in our target. It's a fundamental change in every level. And so while we are not Corinth, the call is no different for us. Our effort to dial our compass in ever so slightly is as valuable for those who are getting a lot of things right as it is for those who are getting a lot of things wrong. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're a follower of Jesus, uh, I think that's our response, right? That whenever God's word is proclaimed, that the, the, the hearers of God's word ought to respond in some kind of way. It deserves, it demands a response. And I think our response this week is to press deeply into God by refusing to think too highly of us. To understand how dependent we are. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing another song together. That's a, that's a time for you to uh, set aside for you to put action to whatever God's stirring in your heart. I, I'll be down front if anybody wants to talk about stuff. If you're watching online, you can use the, the contact form in the, the video description. Listen, uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm, I'm glad you're hanging out today. Man, I'm glad you're pressing in. Um, you can respond to God's word, too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. That, that's what we want to, to call you to today. The Bible is clear that the natural man, that's what Paul calls us in chapter 2, the natural man is far from God because of our sin. We reject him as king. We reject him as Lord. And we deserve the, the wrath that is naturally owed for treason. All right? That's, that's the, the, the predicament that the Bible lays out for what we live and exist in. But the Bible is also very, very clear that the, God, uh, that the God who is perfectly just in handing out wrath for the treasonous, he is also the God who loves us with a great love, who is rich in mercy and made a way where there was no way. And so even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he is the God who delights in bringing people to life. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he he came, he put on flesh, he dwelt among us, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. He had righteousness enough to spare. So now the king who conquered sin and death now calls on you this morning to respond to him in repentance. That turn in faith, trust in him. You don't need me, but I'd love to be helpful to you as you make sense of what that response of faith looks like. I'll be down front here for people in the room. If you're watching us online, again, use the, the contact form. It's a good day to respond to God's word. So whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond, let us humble ourselves this morning before the good king and respond to him together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a lengthy chapter in 1 Corinthians. Every single week, my heart needs to be reminded that you are God and you are king and I am not. I fight against it. Even as I fall more in love with you, I still fight against it. Humble me before you. Call me to repentance before you. If there be anything in my heart and life that's still defined by and shaped by and measured by the things that you have saved me out of, kill those things off. Give me new eyes to see. I really like the deep things of God, but I'm not always ready for it. But 
You're the God who makes ready. Humble us before you. Draw us deeper into yourself as you make yourself more known. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would we respond to you in faith this morning? Draw people into your kingdom for the glory of your name. Build something here that we could never get the credit for. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.